Mask Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. All right, welcome to the Lawfather podcast. Lawfather here, still in Lawfather headquarters as we are still under stay-at-home orders here in Florida. Ask you to take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And uh, if you ever need to get in touch with me, 855-LAWFATHER is the phone number. Lawfather at tampalawfather.com is the email address that's for this show. And we're going to be getting into listener questions later on in the show. And that's a good spot to send me an email to get your question answered. Instagram, we are the Lawfather Tampa. Facebook, the Lawfather. Now, I've mentioned this place before, Bravo Delta Legal Services for all the personal injury attorneys out there, car crash attorneys, medical malpractice attorneys, anybody who needs to get medical records or have medical summaries done. Bravo Delta Legal Services is who we use. They do a great job. 813-591-4259 or look them up on the web. Uh, You'll find them there. So, Let's dig into a couple things. As we record this, we are right in the middle of the NFL draft. We've already had round one. We have rounds two and three tonight and the rest of the rounds through seven on Saturday. Uh, We have seven guys in this year's draft and uh, it's going to be a little bit different one. Uh, Those of you who watched it the other night saw how different it it is in real life or at least uh, on the the fronting side of things now on the back end of things it is wholeheartedly different as well so you saw teams doing the draft from from their house from their homes uh, versus being at their facilities or on location at the draft itself uh, each of the teams generally has a little war room set up and essentially a big conference room and a board and the players that they want to take on that board. So a little bit different doing it virtually. Uh, talked to one of the teams earlier today about one of our guys. And one of the differences that is leaving a lot of uncertainty, especially for the undrafted free agent type guys, is are the teams going to sign as many undrafted free agents this year as they typically do? And this team that I was talking to, and they're a smaller market team, so I do think that we're going to see a little bit different, a little bit different thought process among the smaller market teams and the larger market teams. But this team is saying, hey, we don't know what our numbers are going to look like for undrafted free agent signings. And the thought may go that if we have an abbreviated preseason and that they might not completely fill their rosters. And that would be an interesting thing. Or they may not want to pay out the signing bonuses right now. Now, the average signing bonus for an undrafted free agent type guy is right around $6,000. And according to the NFLPA, uh, there's uh, another about $6,000 in additional guaranteed money that these undrafted free agents saw last year. So when we're talking about undrafted free agents, we're not talking about huge amounts of money. Uh, although they usually do sign for the league minimum, which is now a $100,000 pay raise for them. So if we actually play this year, it'll be $610,000 for them. But for these smaller teams, they could save some pennies here and there and not dole out some of these signing bonuses and wait till we figure out if we're going to have a preseason because these some of these guys will always be there. Now, do they run the risk of not getting the cream of the crop? Yeah, I, I think so. 
And I, I have a cornerback from North Dakota State. You all heard him uh, earlier in one of the earlier episodes, Marquise Bridges. And he's a guy who falls in this category. And I think he has a, an opportunity to maybe be a sixth or seventh round pick, but most likely will be an undrafted free agent type. And I, I think he's more of a top tier undrafted free agent type and I know I'm probably a little bit biased since I represent him but uh, done my research done all my looking into things and talking to different people and I think that's a good landing spot for him in terms of uh, where he is and I, I do consider him one of the top tier ones and I think that these teams that take that attitude that they're not going to fill their rosters right now that guys like Marquise Bridges won't be there so, um, you know, is he a household name? No. Could he be a household name? Absolutely. So as we look at this thing, you know, we're, we're really seeing a lot of differences than we normally would see. Uh, typically, a couple weeks from now, we'd be having rookie mini camps. It's a three-day mini camp. About half the teams do it on one weekend and about the other half do it on the following weekend. And it's another opportunity for guys to get a shot. So what you have is all the rookies, all the, the guys who are drafted and are signed as undrafted free agents, go to rookie minicamp. Now, in order to fill out a full squad for rookie minicamp, the teams bring on a whole lot of non-roster invitees who come on out and um, participate in all the drills and the practices and the scrimmages and all that. But we're not going to have that this year. So there's going to be a lot of guys who would typically – get an opportunity who just aren't going to get that opportunity this year. And it's really unfortunate, but it's where we are. Uh, really interesting time for the draft right now. And we're going to have a busy weekend ahead of us as we dive in and, you know, talking to teams, texting, calling, it's going to be a real crazy Saturday here. So, uh, and I know that you're going to be hearing this after the draft. So, on our next episode after this one, we'll talk about and break down what happened in the full draft. Now, let's talk a little bit about the coronavirus and where we are with things like that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that today. Uh, we've been in this for uh, over a month now, probably heading closer to two months. And I think everybody's kind of inundated with it. But I think it's important to talk about some of the legal aspects. This is a legal show. I, I am an attorney. And there's some interesting things that have come of this. And I believe South Florida, possibly Miami-Dade County, uh, but it may have been Broward County, uh, one of the South Florida counties put in the law that if you were in public, you had to wear a mask. Well, that brings up a little bit of an interesting twist on things because in Florida, it's actually criminal to wear a mask. It is illegal in Florida to wear a mask in public. How does a county, how does anybody, any governmental entity in Florida, other than the legislature, have the ability to allow people to wear masks when there's a state statute? Well, there's actually an attorney down in South Florida who's fighting that right now. And, you know, I questioned the same thing, did a little bit of looking into this. And the statute's pretty clear. You wear a mask, you're breaking the law. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, the law's a little bit longer than that and a little bit more detailed. But the gist of it is you wear a mask in public, you're breaking the law. All right. So as we're talking about this mask law in Florida and it turns out there's actually a lot of southern states that have this mask law in terms of that you can't wear masks out in public. 
Now, why Florida? Why southern states? The answer is actually pretty simple. A lot of these laws that are, that are in place that make it illegal to wear masks in public are from the Ku Klux Klan days. And you know, ever since I've been around, they haven't really uh, had a big presence anywhere. So I can't say I know what that's like. Uh, I know and understand from reading history who they are, and, and it's not a good group whatsoever. But the Ku Klux Klan is why there's these mask laws in a lot of the southern states and in Florida. Uh, that's the origin of it. That is uh, how they came about and why legislatures felt the need to pass laws such as that. Now, you have laws that are written by the legislature, and then these laws are interpreted by real people in the judicial branch. So you have the appellate courts and you have the Supreme Court, and that's what we call case law on the legal side of things. So we have our statutory law. It is illegal to wear a mask in public. And then we have our case law that interprets that law. And what does it really mean? And what is the intent of that law? And the case law seems to point to the fact that it is illegal to wear a mask in public in Florida if your intent is to then go and commit a crime while wearing that mask. So, you know, that's that's where we are with things. And it'd be really interesting to see. And I don't think we're going to see this, but it would be an interesting thing to look at is if someone got arrested for wearing a mask where this would land legally. Uh, I, I can't imagine there's any state attorney in the state of Florida that would pursue that as a case if law enforcement made an arrest on that. But that's that's where we are. That's where we are with things. That's South Florida and their mandate that people wear masks. Now, I think a, a good transition about talking about masks reminds me of a law enforcement story. And I know we haven't done one of these in a long time, but the whole mask, we'll call it a controversy. It's not really a controversy because there's nobody all that upset about it, about, except for this attorney in South Florida who is potentially pursuing litigation. But be that as it may, one of my most favorite car chases uh, ended with a ski mask in a trunk. And here's how it started. Uh, my partner and I, uh, he was down in the southern part of the area. My area encompassed the northern part and we bordered each other. And my area covered the area of, that is known as South Greenwood. It's in the city of Clearwater. We worked for the county. The city of Clearwater directly bordered my area. So every once in a while, I would peek into some neighborhoods and try to see what I could find. And I'd gotten a tip that there was a drug house and I, I see this car, it's an older car pulling out of this house and I decide to follow it and see what's going on because we know through all our sources that the comings and goings of that house are generally drug related. Guy runs a stop sign, I turn on the lights and he continues on. So I continue following him and most times, and I mean, we've seen it in on TV. We've seen it in the movies. Car chases are high speed. And I, I've been in uh, my fair share of high speed car chases. And 
they're kind of crazy. Uh, this was the exact opposite of that. So I have my lights and sirens on, and now this guy is doing 25 miles an hour throughout the neighborhood, and we are stopping at every stop sign, and he is signaling for every turn that he's making. It was the craziest thing. Nobody could really figure out what was going on, why we were in a 25-mile-per-hour car chase while stopping at stop signs and while signaling. Now, guy finally does stop. We get up there, we search the car, and coming right back to the mask thing, we find a ski mask. Now, this was middle of summer, so it was probably June, July, or August, and really begs the question, why do you have a ski mask in the car in Florida? Number one. Number two, there was nothing illegal in the car. And number three, he had a valid driver's license. So still to this day, really have no understanding of why he ran. Uh, you know, typically we would see in a, a car chase that maybe wasn't 100 mile per hour, even in those uh, high speed chases, people throwing drugs out the window. Uh, I mean, I was right behind him the whole time. I didn't see any drugs come out the window. I didn't see him hide anything. We searched the car really well. So still to this day, and this had to be 10 plus years ago, no idea why he didn't want to stop. He didn't really have an explanation as to why he didn't stop. But there is your 25 mile per hour car chase with a mask in the car. So that then takes us to listener questions for the day. Uh, I've picked out two really good ones, or I think they're really good ones. So we'll go through them. And as I do every time I do listener questions, I just copy and paste, and then I read them live on the podcast and answer them live. So no prep work in terms of the answers. So doing it as if we are taking these as live questions coming in. Number one, I was hurt in a car accident. I have a lot of bills, but I don't want to sue anyone. What do I do? Well, the simple answer is you don't have to sue anyone. The first thing that we are going after when we're talking about a car crash case is the insurance company. That's the first place we're looking. Uh, most people who have assets are going to have insurance and they're going to have plenty of insurance to cover your damages and your medical bills fall in line of those damages. So there's, and there's a, an important difference here. You have a claim and then you have litigation and it starts off as a claim. And the idea is that we resolve it while it's still a claim. That's the number one goal. That's the number one idea. Generally speaking, it works out better all around. Uh, we can resolve a, a claim, which is really just any car crash case that we're not in the process of suing anybody yet. And we can resolve those in anywhere from six to 12 months on average, sometimes a little bit sooner, sometimes a little bit longer. So we don't necessarily have to be in the court system. And that's not always the best place to be. I mean, the insurance companies generally want to resolve the cases that should resolve. And they only really want to fight us on the ones that they think they have a chance of winning. So do you have to sue anybody? No, you don't. It's not a prerequisite that if you have a car crash case that you're actually going to sue anybody. And at the end of the day, the only time that that actual person is going to be involved, and even then they're not necessarily involved, is 
if we're in a jury trial, because they most likely will be sitting at the defense table with the defense attorneys. But other than that, we're dealing directly with the insurance company. So we're not dealing with an individual. So I hope that answers the question. You don't have to get into litigation. Litigation is a long process, anywhere from a year and a half to two years from when we file our lawsuit is when we typically see uh, those cases resolve. Uh, And that would be in addition to that six to 12 months that we talked about earlier. So you don't have to sue. You can do it without litigation. I always do recommend having an attorney to handle your case. Uh, If you check out my social media every Friday, I do free advice Friday. And for the past few, Free Advice Friday has been about how to handle your own car crash case. Can you do it yourself? Yes. Would I recommend it? Uh, probably not. The average walkaway amount for a client or for a person in a car crash is typically less when they try to handle their own case versus when they hire an attorney. So I would always recommend at least talking to an attorney and getting an opinion on your case. And then making an educated decision from there. Maybe it's right to have an attorney. Maybe it's not. But just because you have an attorney doesn't mean that you're going to end up in litigation. Uh, And we do do litigation. We try cases and we try to try the right cases and not the ones that are just pie in the sky hopes. So um, we're always going to give you our true opinion on it, whether we think you should take what's offered or whether you should press on into litigation. But the important thing to know is it is always up to the client. The client drives the ship. We are just the means of of getting to the end. So like I said, hope that answers it. If not, hit me up and we'll discuss it some more. Number two, I'm on probation for DUI. I'm filling out an application that asks if I have been convicted of a misdemeanor. How do I answer that? All right. So I don't know this person's name to look up the file and to figure out exactly uh, what the status of that case is. Okay. But I can make some assumptions based on the question. So we have somebody who's on probation for DUI. Generally speaking, if you're on probation, the case is essentially ended either via a jury trial, a bench trial. A bench trial is just a trial that you have no jury, but the judge makes the decision or the person's accepted a plea deal. Now, that brings some finality to the case. In most criminal charges, you can end it in one of three ways. You can have it be not guilty. You can have it be a withhold of adjudication, or you can be adjudicated guilty. Now, this adjudicated thing, what is it? It is just a way of saying how the case was finished. That's it. That's what that means. Now, not guilty. And guilty, easy to understand, all right? Guilty, you did it, or at least the evidence says that you did it. Not guilty doesn't necessarily mean that you're innocent. It just means that you're not guilty, that the evidence wasn't sufficient. Uh, I think one of the really quintessential examples of that is the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty. Doesn't mean he was innocent of it. I, I think the civil court felt otherwise or the civil jury felt otherwise in a separate case and found him responsible for it. Right. So he wasn't innocent, but it didn't reach the standard to be guilty, which is beyond reasonable doubt. 
Now we have this weird thing that I mentioned that is a withhold of adjudication. Now what is that? Well, we're not really saying you're guilty, but we're not saying you're not guilty. How I describe it is it kind of puts you in purgatory. You're, you're not one or the other. It's essentially that the case was resolved. No one is saying you did it. No one is saying you didn't do it. Everybody's just saying that in the best interest of everybody, this case was resolved. That's essentially what that means. Now, when you have a withhold of adjudication, generally there's some penalties that go along with it to compare that with not guilty. Once you're found not guilty, there's no penalties that go along with that. And then on a guilty adjudication, there are penalties that go along with that. Now, what assumptions can we make on this question? Because the question was about probation for a DUI case. Well, if he was convicted or if he or she was convicted of DUI, that is statutory. You cannot have a withhold of adjudication per Florida state statute on a DUI. So in this case, if it is truly a DUI and the case was truly resolved and the person is on probation, then there's no choice but for it to be adjudicated guilty, which means you've been convicted of a misdemeanor. That's what that would mean. Now, Hillsborough County has done something a little bit unique. And as we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about DUI because before the new Hillsborough County program, you could get DUI reduced to a lesser charge. And when you had DUI reduced to a lesser charge, which would be reckless driving, it was it was always done under the regular DUI sanctions. Okay, so which means you would have a reckless driving, but you would have an adjudication of guilty, which would mean you would still have to answer that you were convicted of a misdemeanor. Now, Hillsborough Hillsborough County, which is where Tampa is, for those of you listening outside of the Tampa Bay area, introduced a new program and it was pretty progressive. And I, I think it's been a really good thing. It's called the Rider Program. Uh, the intent of it, it's R-I-D-R, it's an acronym. And the intent of it is to reduce recidivism with DUIs and to help give people a path out to not have this forced guilty adjudication. And and I think the concept comes from you don't end up having a lot of people out there who have multiple DUIs and the people who have multiple DUIs. They're never going to get it. It's always just going to be something that's going to be an issue for them. But the larger percentage you're dealing with people who have otherwise not ever broken the law and have this one misdemeanor charge sitting out there. Now, look, I'm not saying DUI is a good thing. I am wholeheartedly against it. And I mentioned this on this show several times. I talked about a little bit when when I was on Ian Beckles podcast. I am wholeheartedly against getting in that car. Call an Uber, call a cab. Okay. But from a really practical standpoint, I understand the need for a system like Hillsborough County has in place because what it does is It allows you to essentially complete the conditions that you would normally have for a DUI probation, community service, driving school, victim impact panel, fines. Uh, Sometimes there's a 10-day impound of the car. 
completing all of those things. Uh, and there's usually a substance abuse evaluation, a drug, an alcohol and substance abuse evaluation. Some of the judges are making that mandatory for people to attend who are in this program. But they get in and they complete it successfully. That DUI charge is reduced to a reckless driving. And that reckless driving comes with a withhold of adjudication meaning they don't have a misdemeanor conviction. And I think that's an important thing when we're talking about a crime that has a decently low recidivism rate anyway. Recidivism is someone goes out, they commit a crime, they get punished for it, they go and do it again, and then they do it again, and they do it again. Uh, Prisons are filled with uh, recidivists, okay? But we want to cut down on that, and I think this is a good way to cut down on that. It's a pretty involved program, so I would definitely say if you had any questions about it, please call an attorney. Uh, We have an attorney in our office, Monique Scott, former state attorney, who deals pretty heavily in the DUI world and knows the ins and outs of that program as well. So if you have any questions about that, please reach out to us, 855-LAWFATHER. We are here for you to discuss all of those different things. So that is uh, that is it for today. We covered a lot today. We had the NFL draft, and we talked a little bit about really some some good questions here with DUIs and car crashes. Uh, last time, just to take a quick step back, we talked about the uh, the college lawsuits. I believe next episode we're going to have somebody from a local college here discussing some of the aspects of this remote learning with us. I think it'd be a really good thing to get the picture from the university itself to see where these things are heading in terms of this remote online learning piece. So um, we're working through the draft all weekend. Uh, On the next podcast, we're going to talk about the draft and how crazy Saturday is going to be for us, uh, Saturday, uh, April 25th. So, uh, and I know we're going to be airing this on uh, the 27th is when it gets released. But hey, give you something to think about, give you something to look into. All right. And if you have any questions, as always, reach out to me, 855 Lawfather, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. Our Instagram, the Lawfather Tampa. Facebook, The Law Father. I answer every single one of those things. So if you send me a message on Instagram, I'm answering you. If you send me a message on Facebook, I'm answering that as well. All right. Last ask, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That helps us out a lot. And hope you enjoyed it. Law Father out. This is a cannabis podcast. Quick fix on radio influence. Now, as far as uh, companies go, uh, uh, CBD companies, are you guys deemed essential? Are you guys an essential business? So, yeah, uh, surprisingly enough, um, it's amazing where, you know, it's one of those things where it's a little bit of a double standard. We're great on one aspect, but on another, you know, we're not included in some things. So we're considered essential when it comes to health and wellness and and other things that people are suffering from. But when it comes to being part of our government, we seem to be getting the shaft. Well, the government is good at shafting, and that's really what they should be called, a shaft and not the government. Um, you know, as far as small business loans go, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a small business owner myself and self-employed. Yeah. I also also work for a radio station, but I'm self-employed as well. Uh, as somebody who's a small business owner, are you looking into getting a loan? Because, you know, I'm looking into it myself. 
and it's yeah. it's, it's it's like uh, it's almost impossible to get going. I mean, how you have any luck with that? So I applied, um, even though it was stated pretty clearly that I'm probably not going to qualify. Um, but you know, I mean, I have to be licensed by the state of Florida. I'm compliant. I have my license. I pay my taxes, but yet I, and I did apply for the SBA loan because I lost a large amount of business when this first happened. And, um, I'm probably not going to be approved and and I'm well aware of that. And I'm hoping those changes are coming. The Cannabis Podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.